Good morning. Let's pray, can we? Father, once again, we just praise you for who you are. Lord, I pray that you'd open up our minds and our hearts this morning. Show us a glimpse of your glory. Lord, help us to see who you are. Help us, Lord, not to have some distant God who we don't know, but help us to have a God who we have a relationship with. Show us your glory, Lord. Show us who you are. Teach us, Lord God. Lead us in the way of everlasting. We need you. God, we're desperate people. We live in desperate times and in a desperate world, but we have the answer, and it's your son, Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, as we open up your word to hear from you, to obey you, and to follow you. And God, the joy, the abundant life comes when we have a close relationship with you. So that's what we're asking for this morning. So bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's kids said? Amen. So in the book of 2 Samuel, we read the narrative of God's people, how they defeated the Philistines, and they're bringing back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The Ark for them was the most instrumental symbol of faith and of God's presence. And of course, inside of it were the two tablets that God gave to Moses with the law written on it. So after many years of captivity... The ark is brought back to the nation's capital, and David and many others greatly rejoice seeing it come into the city. 2 Samuel 6.20 says, Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids and of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to her, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And then he said, And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. You know, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we stop and realize how we've been chosen by an almighty, all-powerful God, we've had his grace poured out on us, then we too, when we realize that for real, then we too will start to celebrate who he is and all that he's done and his love and his grace and all that he's given to us. I remember... Gosh, it's eight and a half, nine years ago now when I first got here, I was teaching through the book of Revelation on Sunday nights. And I said that verse mistakenly before the service began, that I'll be even more undignified than this. Well, I think God wanted to test me on that. And God broke my heart over something before the service even began. And during worship, and if you know me at all, I'm not an emotional guy at all, just ask my wife. But he broke me in half that night. And I was weeping like a little child, and I couldn't stop. And I had to tell the worship leader, if you ever sing that song again, you're fired. <laughs> but you see, even though I'm not an emotional guy, and I, and I don't like people to really know what's going on in this sick little head of mine, the Lord invites us, the Lord himself invites us to be expressive in our gratitude towards him. And sometimes, like King David, to be even more indignified than this. You see, the Christian life is one of joy, no doubt, and it's one of celebration. But it's also one of humility. 
And catch this, and this is the title to today's sermon, and even appearing foolish to a lost and dying world at times because we follow Christ. Keep that in the back of your mind and open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as we continue in that verse-by-verse study. Two weeks ago in our Corinthian study, Paul once again touched on the difference between God's wisdom and human wisdom, and he explained how we're stewards of the gospel of Christ. We said we must rely on and be surrendered to the Holy Spirit in order to operate within God's wisdom and not our own. We learned as children of God, we are co-heirs with Christ. And remember, what does Christ own? He owns everything. And so we can get our eyes off a of man and off the things of this world and put them firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul said, but remember, you're simply stewards of everything you have. You're simply a steward taking care of somebody else's possessions. And then last week, Andy came out of 1 Corinthians and taught out of the Gospel of John how Christians are hated for Christ's sake. And so this morning in 1 Corinthians, it kind of goes along with that, that we are fools for Christ's sake. We're hated for Christ's sake, and we're also fools for Christ's sake. So if you have your sermon notes there on your chair, Roman numeral 1, Example for following Christ. If your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let's begin at verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Why? That you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. You know, when I first read this, I kind of scratched my head. What does Paul mean that I have transferred figuratively these things to myself and Apollos? I mean, that is kind of a strange saying. Well, first, you have to read the statement in context, right? He says, now these things. Now what things? It points us back to what Paul has been teaching this Corinthian church all along, that they were glorying in men instead of Christ, and that's wrong. And, and so I read several commentaries because, again, this kind of threw me a little bit. I was like, and I want to see what they said. And when you know it, almost all of them agreed with one another what this is trying to say. This is what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary said there in your notes. I have represented under the persons of Apollos and myself what really holds good of all teachers, making us, too, a figure or a type of all the others. So in other words, Paul is using himself and Apollos as an example of all Christ's servants, not just teachers, but all the leaders. He's showing how we should all represent Christ. When we get to chapter 11, Paul's going to say, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Notice Paul didn't say, imitate me when I act in the flesh. Imitate me when I behave rudely. No, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Wearsby said, God's servants are stewards of his truth, and the key test is this. Have they been faithful to obey and teach the word of God? Not just faithful preaching, but faithful practicing as well. Ouch. There in your notes, Paul says, not to think beyond what is written. In other words, do not add to or take away from Scripture. 
Boy, how important is that for today in our churches? Do not add to, do not take away from Scripture. You see, so many people claim this is what the Bible says without even knowing where to point to. You know, my Bible says God helps them who helps themselves. No, your Bible does not. But so many people say stuff like that because they take Scripture either out of context or they have no idea. They heard it somewhere along the way, so it must be true. Google said it after all. I have said many times, and it holds true, I can make this book say anything. And I have a million examples throughout my ministry career of people trying to make this book say something it doesn't by taking it out of context. The Apostle John in Revelation 22:18 says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. John Walvoord said, what a solemn warning this is for us today. What a solemn warning it is to critics who have tried to tamper with the word of God to make it say what they want it to say in arrogance and self-confidence. There in your notes, the Bible is God's word. And if we add or take away to fit our own agenda, we're in real danger. This is how people get off track with this new wave of doctrine going through the church. You know, I've been a Christian long enough to see these waves of doctrine go in and out of the church. And some of them were laughable and some of them were really detrimental to the body of Christ. You think of the wealth doctrine or laughing in the spirit or any other false theology. And I'm going to give you a couple of quick examples of how this happens, okay? Bear with me for a minute. If I take scripture out of context, I can make the Bible say, if one person of the family gets saved, that means the whole family then is saved. Isn't that great? Acts 16.31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Well, there it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your household. Hey, fantastic. But in context, what that passage is saying, the Philippian jailer could be saved if he would place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then members of his household could also be saved if they would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to take things in context, or we, again, can make this say anything. Uh, another example, and then I'll move on. Some denominations say that if a believer has a certain sign gift or practices a certain sign gift, then and only then can you then have proof of your salvation. If you practice this certain sign gift. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, if you don't happen to have that sign gift... Then you walk around doubting if you're saved or not. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians later. We'll get to it. He asks a rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 12, 29. He says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts. And I'll show you a more excellent way. Now, 
I don't know why I chose 1 Corinthians because there is a lot of controversial passages within here. It's sexual sin and, and the gifts and all these different wonderful things. And I get to preach on all of them. Boy, I'm smart. But right here, Paul says, not everyone has the same gift. So if you limit your salvation to exercising one sign gift and you don't have that sign gift, then you're not saved? That doesn't make any sense. But you see, a lot of people want a God of their own making. You see, my God would never do that. My God would never do this. My God would never say that. My God would... Who's your God? What's his name? Because my God wrote 66 books of a love letter to you. And when you say my God would never, let's crack this open and see what God has said. Thomas Campbell famously said, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, shut your mouth. No, we say silent. So here again, Paul says, do not think beyond what is written. Why? That none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. And so when we use unbiblical standards as judgment for leaders or anybody else, we can get ourselves in trouble really quickly. And so Paul, once again, is touching on don't take sides. Don't take sides with one teacher over another. Don't do that. Keep the word of God the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the scriptures the main thing. And you see, these Christians were puffed up. They had a pride problem, a real bad pr pride problem, and Paul's going to get after them on it. And a lot of it was demonstrated because of these cliques within the church. You know, and so he's going he's gonna to later in this passage really get after them for it. And he starts Roman numeral 2 there. All you possess was given to you. All you possess was given to you. Look at verse 7. And I love how he asks this. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? I, I love that. I love that. Why do you boast as though you didn't receive it somehow? Like somehow you made it. Somehow you earned it. In this verse, Paul asks three questions. And I'm going to touch on all three of them. Number one there in your notes. Who makes you differ from another? You see, every spiritual gift we have comes down from the Father of lights. And so if every gift that we have is from God, why do we then boast in our gift? You see, I have the gift of teaching. You only have the gift of helps. You see how wonderful I am. And, and Paul's like, wait a minute, what makes you differ than anybody else? Apart from Christ, as ACDC would say, you're on the highway to hell. <laughs> John the Baptist said in John 3:27, a man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And there in your notes, he must increase. I must, three of you got it. He must increase, I must decrease. 
Okay, good job. Number two, the second question Paul asked, what do you have that you did not receive? Again, every gift that you have is from God in heaven. So why are you boasting about it? That's the question. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So why are you boasting about it? Number three, why do you glory as if you had not received it? So if you have, if your spirituality, if your everlasting life is truly a gift from God, how bad, how terrible is it to be so proud about it and act as if God hasn't given it to you and steal his glory? That's what you're doing. If it's truly a gift from God, and you're acting as if somehow you're so wonderful and you gave it to yourself. That is stealing God's glory. By the way, he, he doesn't like that too well. Warren Wiersbe said there in your notes, If we glory in men, even godly men like Peter and Paul and Apollos, we are robbing God of his glory that he alone deserves. Here's the thing. If anything of eternal value happens through you, it was because God did it. Anything of eternal value that happens through you is because God did it. And so Paul, my brother from another mother, Roman numeral three, a sarcastic correction. See, Sandra, it is a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> Look at verse eight. I'll pay for that later, by the way. <laughs> Paul says, you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign. Then we also might reign with you. The word Paul's using here for fool is usually used about food. So it's, in other words, Paul is saying you have a full belly. You're fully satisfied in self. You're not hungry. You're not searching. You don't need anything. You're full. Now contrast with, with Jesus' words out of the Sermon on the Mount... Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, Blessed, or oh, how happy are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst are natural desires of the body, right? And, and so it can be described as a passion or a strong desire. You hunger and thirst. You have a passion for God's righteousness. There in your notes... Most Christians have been fooled into believing that something from this world will fulfill the strong cravings within our lives. If you ever read the life of King Solomon, this will tell you the truth. King Solomon had a thousand women and he had everything, wisdom, money, he had everything you can imagine. And yet at the end of his life, his soul was empty and he said, everything is vanity of vanities. Everything is futile. Nothing satisfied King Solomon apart from God. Spiritually speaking, the hunger that God places in us is deep down in our heart. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity, the, the thought of eternity, in the heart of all men. And I think all means all, and that's all all means. So God has put eternity in the heart of all men, and that's why people who don't know the Lord 
walk around so unfulfilled, right? We, we want to go more in debt to fill that hole. We want to drink just one more glass of whiskey to fill the hole. Just one more, just one more, whatever it is. Only to wake up the next morning with regrets going, it didn't fill me at all. It left me wanting. And so here Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, look, hunger and thirst for those things that I can offer you that will fill your deepest cravings. It's God's will to fill his kids to the point of overflowing. So then we will touch somebody else. It's not God's will that we walk around unfulfilled in our life. And so I was thinking, so why does Paul's saying seem to contrast what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? G. Campbell Morgan said, Though Paul uses strong sarcasm, his purpose isn't to make fun of these Christians. He wants to shake them out of their pride and their self-willed attitude. He was laughing at them with a holy laughter, yet with contempt for what they had been doing. Can I tell you a secret? Quickest way out of leadership within a church is pride. A good leader must stand on guard consistently against pride. Believing your own headlines. You know, Rich, you did such a good job. I know, didn't I? <laughs> you start believing your own headlines, and I'm telling you what, you're on your way out. Paul gave his protege Timothy the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3.6, and one of the qualifications he said, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Remember what happened to the devil because of his pride. He was disqualified and removed from being God's head messenger because of pride. Think about this. A prideful leader will be out of a job in church as quick as you can imagine if they allow pride to creep in. There in your notes, the Lord may remove his hand of blessing from anything the prideful leader tries to accomplish. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about Nebuchadnezzar and how he was building his own kingdom and he was so full of pride. Look at the things I have built. Look at the kingdoms I have built. Look all around you. My hand has created this. And just then, right, God comes in and says, you're out of here, Nebuchadnezzar, and you're going to eat grass for seven years and take away your pride. I'd have loved to have been there for that. Not that I don't deserve to eat some grass once in a while, but I'd have loved to have seen that. The Corinthians thought they were self-sufficient, just like the Stoics they had studied. And so they really didn't have a need for God. And they thought that their royal position somehow, that they had imagined, we're kings, we're full, we're satisfied. And Paul said, I really wish you did reign as kings. I really wish that's who you were. There in your notes, Paul, as their God-given leader, is saying, I really wish you were kings, because then we could reign as kings with you. Think about your protege, right? I wish my protege did achieve all that. Because as his mentor, what would that make me? All right. Paul in the book of Romans 12, 3 says, For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God to de dealt with each one a measure of faith. 
don't think too highly of yourself. And by the way, I have found most times when you start believing your own headlines, people are trying to lift you up higher on that pedestal so they can kick that pedestal out from underneath you. Remember who you are and everything that you have is a gift. Thankful people aren't proud people. Proud people are not thankful people. All right, Roman numeral four, the real cost of discipleship. Look at verse nine. The Apostle Paul says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we're poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. Boy, that sounds like a fun position, doesn't it? We are the dirt of the world. The word spectacle there in the Greek is the word theoreton, which is where we get our English word theater. So think about this. There in your notes, Paul is communicating that true disciples are hated by the world and are displayed as humble and low members of society. Spectacle is kind of like when we were studying the book of Ephesians. Spectacle is what the Roman army used to do. They'd go in and they'd conquer a town, and when they came back, they would have a parade or a procession, and they would have the cows that they got and all the jewelry they got and the slaves that they had taken, and they'd march them all down the street and make a spectacle of them. And that's the word Paul is using. We are a spectacle. We are spoils of war almost. And so you think about this, that the Roman army would make a spectacle of all their enemies. So Paul says, we're a spectacle, showing the apostles humiliated. By the way, the Corinthians were having none of this. They were such proud people. They were like, hey, I want to be a follower of Jesus and all, but I don't want to be made a fool of. You know, I love Jesus and I want salvation, but making him Lord and becoming a fool for him, I didn't sign up for that. And that's kind of what the Corinthians were saying. I love his salvation. I don't want to be a fool. There in your notes, Wearsby said, Paul was a fool according to the standards of men. Had he remained a Jewish rabbi, he could have attained great heights in the Jewish religion. Or had he sided with the Jewish legalists in the Jerusalem church and not ministered to the Gentiles, he could have avoided a great deal of persecution. But remember what Jesus asked him back in Acts chapter 9 on that road to Damascus. He said, will you follow me? And Paul said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And he really meant it. You know, that, that's a scary question. Lord, what would you have me to do? And then he reveals it and you go, well, anything but that. What would you have me to do, Lord? So again, verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. You know, 
as a spirit-filled Christian, there are going to be times in your walk that you're going to appear foolish to a lost and dying world. There's no way around it. When you do the w- things the way the Lord calls you to do, you have a world outside that would ask questions like, why would you give up that? Why would you give up a six-figure job and go into the ministry? Why would you do this? Why would you do that? Because here's the thing. It may look like loss, but it's actual gain. Because what God calls you to do, he'll empower you, enable you to do, and he'll bless you along the way. And, and I know people who have given up so many things, but they can't outgive God. And I'm not talking financially. I'm talking in every way. If God has called you to it, you're going to look foolish to the world. To be a Christian who's obedient to God and to his word, you're going to look like an utter fool to the world. There's no way around it. And so Paul, again, is being kind of sarcastic, and, and he's showing these Corinthian Christians, this is what it means to follow. This is what it means. These Christians were embarrassed that followers of Christ would be persecuted by the world. I mean, think about this. I said this when I was young in Christ. God, I gave you my whole life. God, I gave you everything. How then could you take my dad from me? God, I've given you everything. I went from a partying young teenage boy to a fully committed Christian, and you let this happen, God. What kind of God is that? Anybody else say that to God? Don't raise your hand. Right? And so here's the question they asked, and what a question this is for today. Why would God allow his servants to suffer like that? That doesn't seem right. I'm the creator of the universe's own kid. I'm his chosen. I'm his favorite. So surely i got to be doing something wrong. And that's what a lot of the false teachers are teaching today, right? If things aren't going right, you created it. It's your lack of faith. You did something wrong. And I would say the opposite is true. You've been counted worthy on behalf of Christ, not only to, to die for him, but to suffer for his name's sake. And so some things in the Bible seem so foolish, right? You, you, you die to live. You lose to win. Man, that doesn't sound right. Wearsby said, those who have been called by God's grace and who have responded by faith realize that Christ is God's power and Christ is God's wisdom. Not the Christ of the manger, nor of the temple or the marketplace, but the Christ of the cross. That's God's power. Someone dying on a cross is, is God's power? And so we are fools for Christ's sake. But we're wise in Christ. Sold-out Christians seem to be foolish to the world. Now catch this. Not self-pitying, defensive, miserable, or poor me Christians, but unashamed, happy, hope-filled fools for Christ. Look again at verse 11. To this present hour we both hunger and thirst. We're poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Sign me up. And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. 
Well, that doesn't go along with the prosperity gospel at all. Paul's description shows humiliation, and it's like, why? You see, in their pride, the Corinthians would avoid persecution at any cost. And it's a slow fade into compromise, can I just tell you? If not being persecuted is more important than following Christ, you will compromise your faith every time. And, and notice Paul says, and we labor with our own hands. Something else you got to know about them to the Greeks and, and there in Corinth, only slaves worked with their own hands. My second boy called me yesterday and he's having to get a new place. He had two roommates and one of them decided, you know what, I don't want to work anymore. So quit without another job, has no money in the bank, and basically asked the other two, support me for the next year while I find myself. Eureka, you found yourself. And so my son, God bless him, I guess he got some work ethic somewhere, was like, so we kicked him out. <laughs> if you won't work, you won't eat. And I was like, that a boy, that a boy. But... You know, you think about this, in their culture, to work with your own hands was only for slaves. I'm above all that. Even the rabbis held a trade, and remember the Apostle Paul was a tent maker before salvation. While he was a rabbi, he was a tent maker. And he kept that trade going, especially during his second missionary journey, because he didn't want anyone in the church to ever say, I was preaching the gospel for ill-gotten gain. I support myself. I don't want you to give me anything. And Paul was a tent maker. Acts 18.1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because... He was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So manual labor isn't a bad thing, right? That's not a bad thing. There in your notes, being defamed, we entreat. When we're slandered, we should return kindness to those who slander against us us now that's tough but again jesus in the sermon on the mount matthew 5 44 but i say to you love your enemies bless those who curse you do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you and again the greeks and the people in corinth heard this sort of stuff and they were like you're a wimp Someone slanders us, we're going to smack them in the mouth. What do you mean return good for evil? What do you mean love those who persecute? What are you trying to say? Might as well have called their mother a bad name rather than saying this. And, and so Paul says, hey, we're the filth and the offscoring of the world, meaning we're despised. We're a sacrifice for Christ. I probably shouldn't say this, but I... I once in a while you turn on the news and you see this so-called reverend that shows up at every newsworthy event and they want to be put out in front and, oh, reverend so-and-so has showed up now. and It's like, really? Really? A slave for Christ? That's what a slave looks like? I want you to think about Paul's pedigree after salvation. What happened to Paul after salvation? Here's a guy that's going to apply for your church. Ready? Here's his resume. I murdered people. 
All right. I've been run out of town. I've caused riots. I've not been supported in my ministry. I've been arrested. I've been in prison. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. Hey, where do I sign up for the ministry job? Come on in, Paul. Would you hire that guy? Guzik said, our problem is we often want the middle of the road and sake for a little popularity, for a little reputation, for just a little of the anointing of God. You see, we want the power without the cost. And God chose Paul and said, this is how it's going to be. And Paul said, thank you. So let's get practical this morning. Such a flowery message this morning, wasn't it? But I thought, I thought about this a lot, and I tried to give this to Andy, and then he came out of the Gospel of John instead, but that would teach me. But no. I, I thought about my own life. Think about your life for a minute. How, how many times have you done foolish things in your own life? I think about some real poor business decisions I've made, some poor relationship decisions. I, I, I thought about times I've acted in the flesh, times I've behaved rudely. And, you know, you, you, you walk away from something and go, oh, I can't believe I just did that. You ever been there? But the things the Lord has called me to do that made me look foolish actually turn out for my gain every single time. I look back and I, I think about even back when I was 15 years old and, and standing there went from this party kid to all of a sudden now I'm a Christian and people at my 4,000 kid high school are like, what happened to you? And you think about this, how God maybe used that. Then I began thinking about Noah. And I love Noah. Remember, it hadn't rained on the earth at all by this point. And God comes to Noah and says, hey, check this out, Noah. I know it hasn't rained, and you live in a desert. I want you to build a big boat, a real big boat. And you can imagine... While he's building this boat, everyone in the world is looking at this guy going, not only is he a little off the mark, we may need to put him in an institution somewhere. This guy ain't right. And I'm sure the human population at the time were thinking, what a fool this guy is. So I have a quote from Noah. It's extra biblical, but it's a quote. Noah said, sometimes faith will make you look stupid until it starts to rain. Is that not true? As Noah was opening the, you know, the, the ark to anyone who would, and only seven others came on, I bet you they, they, what a fool the whole family is. The whole family's a bunch of fools. What a bunch of nut jobs. And about a day later, oops. Because the Corinthians were wise in their own eyes, they looked down on Paul's explanation of a fool for Christ's sake. The preaching of the cross was so foolish and so incomplete in their mind because, yeah, we want the cross, but we, we want prosperity with the cross. And, and you see, Jesus came, was beaten and hung on a cross so I could kick back until he comes back for me. So I could have the life of luxury until he comes back. After all, I'm his favorite child, right? And that's kind of that's what they believed. And, and so... They were offended when Paul said, we're fools for Christ's sake. The Christian who's considered a fool because of their faith must stay consistently preaching the gospel. I'll be more indignified than this. 
I may seem like a fool, but you know what? If I can snatch one more on the way out of here, I'll appear foolish to anybody. Yeah, I'll, I'll be the fool. I'll play the fool. That's okay. I played the fool for a lot worse things. <laughs> Second Samuel 6.22 again. And I'll be even more indignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. Again, as I said in the beginning, as Christians, when we stop and realize who this God is and what he's done for us, man, we can't help but celebrate his grace. And I, I mean, you know, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And I'm not saying I want to get all charismatic and crazy in here, but think about what God has done for you. And think about King David. I'll be more undignified than this. I'll be a fool because of what Christ has done. And I know, by the way, if I am a fool for Christ's sake, it's going to work out for gain for me somewhere. There in your notes, the Lord himself invites us to be foolish for him while expressing gratitude toward him. And again, Christian life is one of celebration and joy. If you haven't celebrated the fact that you were a lost sinner, condemned for eternity, and been saved by his grace and his mercy, boy, it's time to give it some thought and realize that's something we're celebrating. If we humble ourselves in the sight of God, he'll lift us up. And if we're foolish for God, he'll never, never, let me say it again, if we're foolish for God, he'll never let us be put to shame. We may look like fools here, but boy, let me tell you, the abundant life and then eternal life with Jesus Christ, count me in as a fool, Lord. Count me in as a fool. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up and every week we have elders and their wives in the back who would love to pray with you, but I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you in these last couple of songs. And I never do this. I'm, I don't like to manipulate people and all that nonsense. But I'm going to challenge you to close your eyes for just a moment and contemplate on all that Jesus Christ saved you from and what he saved you to. And as you worship, just consider that just for a moment. All that he's done for you. And again, I'm not talking about rolling down the aisles. And if you do, that's okay. I'll close my eyes. But... I want you to truly worship this king who willingly left heaven's throne to save a wretch like me. Consider that. And as we're worshiping, consider that. With your mind's eye, look to the cross, but then don't stay at the cross because that's not where he is. Look to heaven's throne where he's seated at the right hand in power. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you so much, God why you would become a spectacle for us. That you would take our sin and our shame and our bondage and you would nail it to the cross for us. So now, God, as you call us to things that make us seem undignified, help us, Lord Jesus, to be followers, not just fans. Help us, Lord, to, to count the cost and pick up our cross and follow you that we'd want a Lord as well as a Savior. We'd want you to call the shots. And we know in the end, if we listen and follow and obey, that we'll have the abundant life here and now. So God, teach us to follow you. Teach us to surrender to. Teach us to yield to your spirit. Bless us, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's example that he was willing to be all those things because he was more concerned with winning one more soul 
out of the pit of hell than worrying about what anybody else thought. Give us that heart. Give us Paul's heart, I pray. We love you and we praise you. And we're going to worship you now because of all you are, all you've done, and how you love us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. All those agree, say? Thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithklamath.com. Make sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.